When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, alien stars in our own backyard. Terry Bridges explains how our Milky Way is full of globular clusters that are stolen from other galaxies. And is there anybody intelligent out there? I speak to Paul Davis about SETI and why we push the limits of science to search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We could use radio telescopes to, as it were, listen in to the heavens in the hope of stumbling across a message from E.T., And although the likelihood of success was exceedingly small, that if nobody tried, the likelihood of success would be zero. Plus, news of lava channels on Mars, the youngest exoplanet ever found, and the Russian grunt mission to land on Phobos. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. And now we join our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in astronomy and cosmology. We'll be hearing from Dominic Ford, who works in the Cavendish Lab at Cambridge University, and Andrew Ponson from the Kavli Institute. But first, we speak to Carolyn Crawford, astronomer at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, to find out what's appeared on her radar this month. Well, we're discovering exoplanets all the time, and the latest one of interest is the youngest exoplanet yet discovered. You may argue that 30 million years doesn't exactly sound very young, but it's still 100 times younger than our own Earth, which is about 4.5 billion years old. And this exoplanet, it goes under the telephone number BD plus 201790B, is one of these hot Jupiters. It's six times the mass of Jupiter. It orbits really close to its host star within the orbit of Mercury to our own sun, so very close. But the interesting question is, how do you age an exoplanet? How do you know that it's young and why should you care and the first one is quite simple if you think about it you only look around stars which are themselves quite young some less than a few million years old most planetary searches so most searches for exoplanets concentrate on looking at older stars ones that are more than a billion years old because they're much more sort of stable systems and there's a problem about looking around young stars because they're magnetically much more active and they tend to have star spots on which can mimic the signature of a planetary transit which is one of the, the ways that we detect these exoplanets but this latest discovery they have successfully found this exoplanet round a very young star And it's just another part of the jigsaw puzzle. Until somebody finds a TARDIS, we can't go back and see how our own solar system was formed. But we can see these formation processes around other stars near us. 
and we can see debris disks. We were talking about proplids, the protoplanetary disks, in an earlier podcast. Now, this is just another step looking at very newly formed planets and just piecing together the whole formation stages of a solar system. So now that we've found it, what's the next stage? How can we learn a bit more about how planets form now that we've actually located this very young planet? Well, this is just the the first sort of proof of concept. You've shown that you can find young planets. The idea is to get a population now of them, survey lots of young stars, get a population, see where they are in the solar system, how far out from their sun, and see if you can get the stages. Maybe these planets form very far out and then migrate in towards the sun. That's what some of the theories say. The idea is to try and map those different stages now. So it's just the first data point. Excellent. Well, a planet that we actually know a fair bit about and is in our own cosmic backyard is of course Mars and Dominic there have been some interesting discoveries on Mars recently. Yes there's been a lot of talk in recent times about the possible presence of water on Mars and we think we know now from the succession of space missions where the water on Mars is today. We think it's in the form of solid ice beneath the surface mostly beneath the poles and that's not really in the form which is terribly useful for life. However it would be fascinating if there had been liquid water on Mars in its past which could have been of use to microbial life. Now Mars's surface is peppered with channel-like features which look like historic rivers which have now dried up and there's been a debate about whether these channels were in fact formed by water or by lava flows. Up until now, people have tended to think that they were formed by water because of their intricate structure. They often branch into multiple channels, which then join back together, and they often have islands in the middle of the flow. And people have thought that these intricate structures must be formed by water rather than lava, which tends to just plunge through and dig a fairly even channel. However, Jacob Bleacher uh, in the US has looked at one particular channel, which has historically been ascribed to water, And he's found that towards the end of the channel, there's a tunnel which is dug beneath the surface. And this is almost certainly a lava feature rather than a water feature. And so he is arguing that lava can perhaps, in fact, form much more intricate channels than has historically been thought. And perhaps rather disappointingly, he is arguing that these channels may, in fact, have been carved by lava rather than water. So the evidence for um, liquid water on the surface of Mars in the past is unfortunately weakening slightly. Is the lesson here that we can't necessarily make assumptions based on Earth geology and apply them to planets like Mars? Because if it looks like water would look on Earth, that doesn't necessarily prove that it's water elsewhere. That's certainly true, although in fact Bleacher has been comparing these features with features in Hawaii and he thinks that the view in the past has just been simplistic and people haven't really studied lava flows on the Earth in enough detail. So how have we actually studied these? Are these from the, the rovers on the ground or is this from satellite imaging? These are from satellite images from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. The rovers on the surface haven't covered enough ground to rediscover these comparatively rare features. And also you want to keep them fairly safe and not going down lava channels and falling down lava tubes. 
That's very true. In fact, sadly, Mars rovers don't have a brilliant track history of getting themselves out of holes, do they? <laughs> um, but thinking of orbiting around Mars, looking at what's going on, there's some news about Phobos as well, one of Mars's moons. Yeah, this comes from the European Space Agency's Mars Express. It's one of the orbiters currently going around Mars mapping the, the surface and the properties of the atmosphere. And it's doing a series of flybys of Phobos, which is Mars's inner and larger moon. Now, when I call it a moon, it's not like our moon. This is a sort of little chunky thing, very misshapen, sort of average. I mean, an average radius is only about 15 kilometres. And its surface is, you know, pockmarked with craters and it's got curious sort of grooves and streaks. It's a very, very curious little moon. And one of the things about it is it's not very reflective. It's one of the darkest objects in the solar system. And when you analyse the light reflected by the surface, it suggests the composition is very similar to some asteroids in it contains a lot of sort of carbonaceous chondrite material. And whilst it's possible it is a captured asteroid that's been captured by Mars's gravity, as you're working out the orbital dynamics of how Mars would capture it and it would settle into the particular orbit it has is not clear. And it could be a captured asteroid or it could be left over from the actual formation of Mars. It was formed around Mars. We don't really know much about Phobos's origin. So one of the things that Mars Express is doing is it's doing these flybys and it's going to try and find out what Phobos is really made of. It's a small, chunky object but its density seems far too low for it to be solid rock. It's either got to be substantially porous, like a third of it has got to be porous, or it's got um, huge reservoirs of frozen ice deep under the surface. And so what Mars Express did on one of the early flybys in March was it flew very close to Phobos so that it actually experiences the gravitational tug. And from that, to work out the distribution of mass and the internal structure of the moon and hopefully find out more about its origin, how that can inform the origin. The later flybys, they've actually been approaching it from a more sort of sunlit direction, so they've had the cameras switched on, and they've also been doing a lot of mapping of the surface, which is very useful preparation for a Russian mission, which is due to fly to Phobos in 2011. It goes under the um, rather glamorous name of Phobos Grunt, and here I want to stress that Grunt apparently means soil, in Russian, but this is a sample return mission to Phobos. So one of the things that Mars Express is able to do is to image some of the potential landing sites for this next sample return mission. Will this be the first time we've landed something on Phobos? Oh yes, it'll be when this Russian mission goes, it'll be the first time we've landed on Phobos. Now, keeping track of all of the different space probes and missions that we have needs an awful lot of work down here on Earth. And Andrew, I believe we've had news this week of updating the deep space network that does some of this work for us. That's right. I mean, it's really easy to forget. You send out these probes. It's really easy to forget that somebody somewhere has to be keeping track of them, getting the telemetry back and actually making sense of the data. And what NASA uses is the so-called deep space network of antennas. And that's keeping track of something like 50 uh, robotic spacecraft out there. And there are three complexes that make up this network. There's one in California in the United States. There's one in Australia. 
and there's one in Spain. And each of those complexes has at least one 26-metre radio dish that can receive signals from these probes, then two 34-metre dishes and one 70-metre dish. Now, 70-metre dish is a pretty impressive radio telescope. And you need that kind of size of radio telescope to keep track of really distant spacecraft sending back feeble signals like for instance Voyager 1 which is about 17 billion kilometers away from the earth so if you want to receive the data it's sending back you really need an, an impressive piece of kit like that. The trouble is that the 70-metre dishes in particular are really ageing. They were built in the 1960s. They're expensive to maintain, and it's not really possible to upgrade them to work with some of the new wave bands that some of the new missions that are being designed now are going to use. So there are sort of two prongs to what NASA is doing to get around this problem. First of all, they're actually repairing their existing 70-metre dishes. So, for instance, they've just started repairing the tracking system on their 70-metre dish in California. And to, to put that into some kind of context, that 70-metre dish weighs about 2.7 million kilograms. And if you imagine, you've got to have some system that points that in different directions on the sky. That's a pretty impressive piece of engineering. And to make these effectively quite minor repairs it's going to take them from now until about mid-november just because it's such a huge engineering challenge but in fact in the long term they don't really want to maintain these 70 meter dishes they're very expensive they use a lot of proprietary technology and they're replacing them with smaller dishes believe it or not they're going down to something like 30 meter dishes and the reason they can do that is because if you build a lot of these cheaper 30-metre dishes, you can link them together using a technology we called interferometry. And using that, you effectively get the power of a much larger dish from using these cheaper, smaller dishes and, and linking them together. So they've also just recently announced that they're starting to build some of these new dishes at their site in Australia. I assume that we can't run the risk of just shutting one down while we build the next generation. That's right. You can't, you can't just shut them down. But the advantage of having these multiple sites, of course, is that, for instance, even though the one in California is going to be offline, we're still going to be able to stay in touch with space probes like Voyager. Of course, you do have to bear in mind that the reason in the first place for having multiple sites is because the Earth is spinning around. So from one site, you only get part of the day in contact with your space probe. But nonetheless, this kind of redundancy does mean that you can temporarily shut things down. But we don't want to shut them down permanently and, and then spend 20 years building some new ones. So from the deep space network to really genuinely looking into deep space, Dominic? Yes, I spotted an interesting paper by Dave Alexander in Durham and his collaborators, which was published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Now, astronomers have noticed that some galaxies host so-called active galactic nuclei, and others don't. A galaxy is said to have an active galactic nucleus if it has a strangely bright object in its centre. It can take on a variety of different appearances depending upon the exact orientation of the galaxy and how far away it is. But what we think is going on is that there's a black hole in the centre of these galaxies. You have gas accreting down onto this black hole becoming very hot and emitting right across the electromagnetic spectrum from X-rays through to the radio. But what's really puzzling is that we think most galaxies have black holes at their centre, 
but not all of them have these active galactic nuclei. So why do some of these black holes produce this bright luminosity that we see and others appear comparatively faint? We know, for example, the Milky Way has a black hole at its centre that weighs 4 million solar masses, but it doesn't have an active nucleus. So a leading theory has been that these active nuclei turn on and off in what's called an episodic fashion. And so galaxies today, which we see with AGN, may historically not have had AGN, and galaxies which aren't active today may turn on, which is quite an interesting idea. It means that the Milky Way might in the future become an active galaxy. Now what Alexander and his collaborators have been looking at is the possible effect of these episodes of activity on the formation of stars in early galaxies. And you would expect if you have a galaxy with this very bright source which is turning on and off, it might have quite a profound effect on the formation of stars in these galaxies. It's a comparatively small study. He's looked at one galaxy at a distance of 10 billion light years in the early universe, and he's produced images of massive outflows of gas from this galaxy, which is really compelling evidence that you've got star-forming regions being blasted out of this galaxy and that the star formation of this galaxy is coming to really quite a catastrophic end. So this is an interesting piece in the jigsaw puzzle, but there's still a lot more to be learned about these objects. What sort of timescale are we talking about for these switching on and off? Is this something that we're likely to be able to observe in a distant galaxy? Will we see it switch off? It's of order hundreds of millions of years, so not in our lifetime. And when I say that the Milky Way could in the future become an active galaxy, probably not in our lifetimes. Okay, that's probably for the best, I think. But when we're looking at these sort of cosmological scales, this is where we get some of our best tests of of the physics, of the theories that we have behind it. Andrew, a confirmation of general relativity has been published in Nature this month. Yes, that's right. There's a letter in the magazine Nature out this month that has been looking at testing general relativity on cosmological scales. Now, general relativity is currently our best theory of the way that gravity works. It's this theory that Einstein came up with that gravity is determined by the structure of space and time. Now, despite its many successes, there are constant challenges to the theory of general relativity. And obviously, if we find any concrete observations which show that general relativity is wrong in its predictions, that would be a very important step forward in our understanding of the way the large-scale universe works. So people are constantly proposing different modifications to this theory to see how it could be changed and what the implications would be. This group that are based mainly at Princeton University have gone in search of evidence that any of these theories may be right or wrong. And in particular, what they're comparing is the strength of the way that galaxies cluster on large scales. So we know that gravity causes galaxies to be attracted to each other, and so they cluster together. And they've compared that to the strength of something that we call the gravitational lensing effect. The gravitational lensing effect occurs when light from more distant galaxies goes past galaxies in the foreground and gets bent as a result. And according to general relativity, you can very closely link the strength of these two effects. But some of the alternative theories that have been proposed, they decouple those two effects. And so the strength of the two effects may become different in these alternative theories. 
And what this group have done is they've used the Sloan Digital Sky Survey to get a very large sample of what we call luminous red galaxies, which we think trace pretty well the large-scale structure of the universe. And they've then been able to compare directly these effects, the effects of the bending of the light and the effects of how closely these galaxies cluster together. And they found that it's exactly compatible with Einstein's theory of general relativity and in fact seems to rule out a lot of proposed modifications to that theory. So Einstein's still doing pretty well. And of course, this is the point of science. The hypotheses that we accept as a theory should stand up to these challenges but we should always keep challenging them. That's absolutely right. And a lot of the alternative models that have been put forward have had good motivations. But nonetheless, if general relativity does better, then unfortunately that means that general relativity wins the day. Unfortunate for those whose alternative theories don't stand up to the test. That was Andrew Ponson and before him, Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford with a roundup of Space Science News. They'll be back later on to tackle your questions. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this program, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. This is the Naked Astronomy podcast from the Naked Scientists. And still to come, we discover the history of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI. But first, our galaxy is surrounded by a halo of stars and objects called globular clusters. These clusters can give us some clues as to how the galaxy formed, as many of them seem to be aliens, stolen from other galaxies as the Milky Way grew. So what is a globular cluster, and how can it be an alien? Dr. Terry Bridges from Queen's University, Ontario, in Canada. Think of a big ball of stars, basically. So they're pretty spherical, typically, say, 100,000 to a million stars. So there's that many stars in a, a diameter, something like 10 to 20 parsecs. In that same volume around the sun, in, in the disk of the Milky Way, there might be a few hundred stars. But in this volume, in a globular cluster, there's many more stars. And in fact, it would be bright enough in the center of a globular cluster if, if you were on a planet bright enough at night to read by all these stars so close by. We could spend hours talking about them. There's tons of interesting physics going on, interactions between stars, binary systems forming, stars slingshotting in, being thrown out. And I think they're you know beautiful objects. One important thing from the point of view of this work is that they're generally quite old, anywhere from 12, 13 billion years old. So they're kind of a fossil record of galaxy formation. They're good probes to look at how galaxies form and how they evolve. So how do the stars themselves differ in a globular cluster compared with the stars that we find around us in the spiral arms of our galaxy? So the stars in a globular cluster tend to be quite old, typically stars around the mass of the sun that we see now. The brighter stars, which live their lives faster, have already evolved off the so-called main sequence where stars spend most of their lives burning hydrogen to helium. The more massive, brighter stars have already done this, and they've moved into later phases like white dwarfs where they're harder to detect. So generally speaking, stars in a globular cluster are old, and they're fairly metal poor. So by metallicity, uh, astronomers mean the amounts of heavy elements greater than, than helium. So it's an astronomer, anything heavier than helium is, is a metal. So the stars tend to have low amounts of heavy elements. They're quite old, and they're about the same luminosity or brightness as our sun. In contrast, around us, Around the sun in the disk of the Milky Way, the stars tend to be, on average, more metal-rich. Younger stars, there's stars being formed at present. 
globular clusters are fairly old and everything's happened billions of years ago. I should also say that the globular clusters, the main population forms kind of a halo around our galaxy, so they're random orbits. Uh, there's also population that orbit in the plane of the Milky Way, as our sun does. But the ones in this paper we're talking about are the ones in the halo. I, I was going to ask, whereabouts do we find them? Do all galaxies have their own population of globular clusters around the halo, around the outside? seems to be. Every galaxy we've looked at has a population. The number of clusters in a galaxy kind of scales with the size of the galaxy. So galaxy like the Milky Way or the Andromeda galaxy or Companion Spiral, we have about 160 we know of. Andromeda has maybe twice as many, so a few hundred. Some of the very brightest elliptical galaxies in galaxy clusters can have up to thousands. But even the smallest dwarf galaxies that we talk about in this paper have populations, you know, maybe five to ten. Every galaxy seems to have them, so they're a common feature of galaxy formation. Seeing as they're so very dense compared to what we think of as, as a normal galaxy, does that present different challenges for actually studying the stars inside them? If they're so dense and so close together, is it quite hard to pick out and to understand any individual star? It can be, especially if you're interested in looking at the very centre of a cluster where the density is really high. To make any progress, you need to use, for instance, uh, the you know, Hubble Space Telescope, which has superb imaging to resolve these, these individual stars. So it's really hard work in the centre. As you go further out, the density drops off and it's easier. Certainly getting to the very core is something you can only do with the Hubble Space Telescope or some of the ground-based telescopes that have adaptive optics to improve the, uh, the resolution. So with galactic globular clusters, we can look at a lot of individual stars. We can determine their ages and their metallicities, the amounts of heavy elements they have, which again was something that we did for this paper. What does metallicity really tell us about a star? Because it would seem to me that the older a star would be, the more chance it's had to fuse helium into larger, heavier elements. You'd expect an older star to have a greater metallicity, but it seems that that's not actually the case. No, that's right. You have to, let's put ourselves back, you know, a billion or two years after the Big Bang. And at that point, the universe is pretty much all hydrogen and helium and a bit of lithium produced in the Big Bang. So at that point, the very first stars that formed, the very oldest stars, would be very metal poor. And there's a it's one of the big searches in astronomy to find these so-called population three, the original first stars that formed in the universe. So they'd be very metal poor because other elements hadn't had a chance to be formed yet. You know, the heavier elements, anything basically heavier than helium is formed in stars, either during the normal course of their lives or in supernova explosions of massive stars. So the first generation stars are very metal poor. And then later generations, which were formed from gas that had been enriched by this previous generation, would have more amounts of heavy elements and so on. So heavy elements basically build up over time as we have generations of stars living, dying, exploding, spewing forth their, their gas into the uh, interstellar medium. So it is a bit counterintuitive. It's not quite that simple either. There are, there are young stars that have uh, low metallicity. So there's a range of metallicity even amongst, say, young stars. But generally speaking, younger stars tend to be more metal-rich than, than older stars. So it's more a, a fingerprint, a timestamp from the conditions in which that star were formed. And later on in the universe's history, there are more of these heavy elements around, so more that can be taken into the star when it first forms, rather than the star itself producing these, these elements through fusion as it gets older. That's right. So you have to look at kind of an ensemble of, of stars. So on average, uh, you know, the population of stars does increase in metallicity. 
you can look at the composition of a range of elements, and that so-called you know abundance patterns will also tell you a lot about the conditions in which those stars formed. So there's a lot of information we can get from looking at stars either on their own or in a star cluster. And you've been looking at the relationship between age and metallicity in these star clusters to try and work out where they actually came from. Now, you'd assume that all of the clusters around the Milky Way came from the star-forming regions in the Milky Way, but your paper argues that this isn't the case. No, that's right. We used to think, I mean, there's this lovely phrase, I don't know who said it, but, you know, the galaxies live in splendid isolation. So we know today that's not true. Pretty much every galaxy we can see is, is interacting in some way with another galaxy. In fact, our Milky Way is falling towards the Andromeda galaxy in a few billion years. We're going to merge and form a new galaxy. So, in fact, interactions between galaxies are actually you know, very common. We know of two smaller dwarf galaxies that are being cannibalized, ingested by the Milky Way. One's the Sagittarius dwarf, and the other's the Canis Major dwarf. We can see the trail of stars that these galaxies have left as they've been torn apart falling into the, to the Milky Way galaxy under its gravity. And we can also see some globular clusters that are come from those two galaxies. So the idea is that we know at least, say, about 15 of our 160 globular clusters came from these two galaxies. And so my collaborator, Duncan Forbes, who's at Swinburne University in Australia, we thought there must be more of our globular clusters that have come from other smaller galaxies. And so that's what we set out to do, looking at the age and metallicity of, of the globular clusters in our galaxy. And we found there were sort of two populations. There's a population that are basically old and cover a range of metallicity, but then there's a younger population. And our work shows that a lot of this younger population of clusters have actually come from uh, smaller dwarf galaxies. So formed more recently, and, and then the dwarf galaxies captured by the Milky Way. Dwarf galaxy stars are torn apart. They become part of our halo of stars in the Milky Way. But some of the globular clusters can survive because they're much denser, more robust, so they can survive this you know, accretion process. And they're the clues telling us that we've captured uh, these dwarf galaxies. So is it only the metallicity that you can use to look at a globular cluster and say that isn't supposed to be here, that's come from somewhere else? That's one clue. So that gave us our initial sample of young clusters. So we looked at those in more detail. So we looked at a few different ways we could try and tell if they came from other galaxies. Two that worked out really well, we're looking at clusters that have orbits that are different from most of the other globular clusters. Most of the globular clusters in the galaxy rotate in a certain direction, but there's a handful that orbit in a different direction, which we call a retrograde rotation. So the most likely thing is that these have been captured from other galaxies. So it depends on the geometry of the encounter, how the dwarf galaxy approaches our Milky Way, how it's pulled in. But you can imagine there'd be cases in which the dwarf galaxy is pulled in an opposite direction from the rotation of, of the Milky Way. And so the star clusters that have been captured will rotate in a different direction. So that was one way that worked quite well. We found 8 to 15 of our young globular cluster candidates were on retrograde rotation. The other thing we did was we noticed, and this has been known for some time, that many of the dwarf galaxies that we see surrounding the Milky Way Many of them are in great circles. In particular, there's a, one great circle that has about eight dwarf galaxies, including two fairly, you know, of the brighter, brighter ones. And we find, again, something like maybe eight to ten of our young globular cluster candidates are in that same great circle in the sky. So we think they may have formed from a, a dwarf galaxy that got torn apart. In, in fact, all the dwarf galaxies that are currently in this great circle and our globular clusters may have been formed from a, a larger dwarf galaxy that's got torn apart, but some of its clusters survived. Those are the two main ways we can check our candidates. And so the final numbers we get are 
depending on the uncertainties and which objects are more certain than others. But anywhere, say, from 25 to 45 of the Milky Way's clusters could have been captured from other galaxies, and maybe up six to eight uh, dwarf galaxies involved in that process. So you're almost doing astronomical archaeology in a way. You're, you're digging through the backyard of our own galaxy to find evidence of the dwarf galaxies that were here before that have been soaked up into our galaxy itself. Yeah, that's right. It's, you know, it's hard to find the evidence. We, we see the two galaxies that I mentioned that are in the process of being torn apart. And we can see they're leaving trails of stars in the sky. Some of the big surveys, like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, have found other trails and probably associated with other dwarf galaxies that have fallen in. But we only see a handful of these. And if our model of how we form galaxies is right, then there's a problem because this so-called standard model, the, so the Lambda CDM, or CDM is cold dark matter, predicts that big galaxies like ours are built up from the mergers of many smaller galaxies. So maybe up to 1,000 dwarf galaxies might go into making a Milky Way. And so we should see, if we look hard enough, if this model is right, the remains of these 1,000 or so dwarf galaxies. So far, we've only seen a handful. So we've added a few more, but there must be many more to find. We just have to look hard. So the nice thing about globular clusters is they, many of them do survive this process. So they are a great record of what's gone on. Terry Bridges on the astronomical archaeology you can do by looking at dense clumps of stars known as globular clusters. An altogether different study of aliens is SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Professor Paul Davies is director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona University. He's a broadcaster and also an author. His latest book, The Eerie Silence, looks at both the history and the future of SETI. SETI is about 50 years old, and uh, my book is something of a celebration, but also a critique of what they'd be doing. It emerged from the work done in the Second World War on radar. And after the Second World War, a number of astronomers realized that they had access to a lot of cheap stuff. And they built the first big radio telescopes and began pointing them at the heavens. And within a few years, it became obvious that these instruments have such enormous sensitivity that they're capable of transmitting and receiving radio signals across interstellar distances. In 1959, Giuseppe Cacconi and Philip Morrison published a famous paper in the journal Nature pointing out that we could use radio telescopes to, as it were, listen in to the heavens in the hope of stumbling across a message from ET. And although they pointed out that the likelihood of success was exceedingly small that if nobody tried, the likelihood of success would be zero. And so Frank Drake, an American astronomer, young at the time, took up the challenge in 1960 and used the Green Bank Radio Telescope to start listening in to some nearby stars. And he's still in the game, 50 years on. Why did we think that radio was the place to look? Uh, radio and light share the property of being able to pass through the Earth's atmosphere more or less unheeded. So if you want to communicate from planet surface to planet surface, you'd better use one of those. Radio has the advantage of enormous sensitivity. Uh, light has the advantage of a better data rate. And there is now a flourishing optical SETI program as well as the traditional radio SETI. So it could be that if ET is out there sending us messages, well, it could be radio, it could be optical, or of course it could be something we haven't yet discovered, some other unknown channel. You've hit on a very good point there. You mentioned in the book that SETI has changed a great deal as our own understanding of the physical universe has changed. 
is it essential that we keep moving with our search in order to keep up with not just our technology, but also to try and second guess more advanced technology? I think you've hit the nail on the head with the word second guess, because this entire subject of SETI is plagued by anthropocentrism. Right from the start, the astronomers have asked, well, what will we do? And of course, we need to know what ET would do, not what we would do. And one has been able to see, even over the course of a few decades, a shift in attitude and strategy by the SETI astronomers, simply as a result of changing priorities here on Earth. Not only changing scientific priorities, but even changing political priorities, would you believe? So in the early days, I think there was a feeling that uh, because of the Cold War, that any civilization that is going to build radio telescopes will very soon blow itself up, uh, so they wouldn't be on the air for very long. Uh, that's gone away now, and people are more preoccupied with environmental concerns. So they assume that ET would build a radio transmitter in an eco-friendly manner and wouldn't squander energy. And one has to wonder if uh, we come back in another hundred years, uh, what the political priorities on Earth will be then, and how the SETI strategy will have changed uh, as a result. So uh, what I've tried to do in this book is uh, to get away from uh, the shackles of 20th, 21st century scientific and political thought and really try to think outside the box right across the range of the sciences. What are all the possible ways in which an extraterrestrial civilization might leave an imprint in the universe? It may not be a message, it may just be some inadvertent imprint, something that we could spot. You discuss in the book as well the fact that so far we have no good evidence that life appeared on Earth more than once. And if we only have one life creation event that we can prove happened, then why would we expect that it may have happened outside our own solar system, even outside our planet? Do you think there's a strong argument that life is likely to have actually kicked off outside in the universe? The whole SETI enterprise is predicated on the assumption that life forms readily in Earth-like conditions. There are probably trillions and trillions of Earth-like planets in the universe, so there's plenty of places where life could happen, but will it happen? So the assumption that life will just sort of pop up on cue is sometimes called the cosmic imperative. It's a lovely ringing phrase. I'd love to believe this is true, but how do we know? How can we test the fact that life does arise readily in Earth-like conditions? Well, one way is to ask, has it occurred more than once on Earth? No planet is more Earth-like than Earth itself. So if life is easy to make under those conditions, it should have happened many times over right here on our own planet. Well, how do we know it didn't? Has anybody actually looked? Remarkably, till very recently, they haven't. Nobody's bothered to see whether all life on Earth is the same life. Now, all life so far studied is the same life, but that's a circular argument. If you go looking for A, you'll find A, you won't find B. Most life is microbial. The vast majority of species are microbes. We've only scratched the surface of the microbial realm. We don't know what those little bugs are. Uh, it could well be that intermingled among the familiar life as we know it, are microorganisms representing life as we don't know it. That is, with an alternative biochemistry emerging from a second genesis. So Chris McKay calls this life 2.0. We're familiar with life 1.0. What we want is a second sample of life, life 2.0. Uh, this would be alien in the sense that it would belong to a different tree of life, not necessarily that it came from space. And the flip side of that is we don't even know that familiar life, the sort that you and I represent, started on Earth. It could have started, for example, on Mars and come to Earth later. So this has led to a shift in the in the word alien now, to mean belonging to a different tree and not necessarily coming from space. We have 
extremophile bacteria on Earth that can survive in incredibly difficult conditions. Does that suggest that it's not just Earth-like planets we should be looking at? Some microbes love to live in boiling acid and uh, even above the normal boiling point of, of water and in incredible conditions of radiation and uh, chemical contamination and all sorts. Uh, so far, all of the ones that have been investigated are on the same tree of life as we are, which means that we share genes with them. Uh, we're, of course, interested in finding uh, something radically different and extreme environments are one place to look because, after all, there must be a limit an outer limit to life as we know it. Uh, if something is still living, which is beyond the reach of familiar life, then for my money, that's going to be some sort of alternative life, or we've coined the term the shadow biosphere, that there could be, alongside the ordinary biosphere that we know and love, uh, a sort of hidden shadow biosphere, not hidden because the organisms are invisible, but because they're just small and uh, inconspicuous. We haven't noticed them. But they would stand out if they were in some very extreme niche, for example, in the deep ocean vents, there's an upper temperature limit of about 125 or 130 centigrade uh, for familiar life. If we found nothing between 130 and, say, 180, and then suddenly there was a population of microorganisms thriving between 180 and 200 degrees, well, we would sit up and take notice, and that would be a very good candidate for life as we don't know it. Much harder would, of course, be if these alternative microorganisms were intermingled among familiar life all around us, uh, right under our noses, or even, as I like to say, in our noses, or perhaps up our noses, then that's pretty hard to spot. Then we have to come up with a strategy uh, of thinking, is it possible to find a way to disable all known microbes and see if anything is left standing? Uh, and, and there are ways of doing that, and I'm working with people uh, who are devising experiments and taking a look at this sort of thing. The other way we might like to track down a shadow biosphere is to make a guess as to some way in which life could happen without being our form of life. For example, uh, it could be made of the same things, that is nucleic acids and proteins and so on, but maybe with a different genetic code. Uh, or it could be made of molecules of the mirror images of the molecules in all known life. Uh, and uh, another possibility is that maybe one of the elements that life uses probably not carbon, that seems to be a really important one, but one of the minor elements, like phosphorus, might be replaced by something else. And phosphorus could, for example, be replaced by arsenic, and that's an idea that a colleague of mine, Felisa Wolf-Simon, suggested some years ago. And she's out there looking now, with uh, the help from NASA, looking uh, for arsenic life in a lake in California. And uh, she thinks she's found it. Uh, so we'll, we'll wait and see. That would be very exciting stuff. So how was SETI actually funded? A lot of people think that it's taxpayers' money being frivolously wasted. Well, I can assure you that there's almost no taxpayers' money that goes into SETI. It's pretty much all privately funded. Most of it comes from Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, and he's paid for a big telescope system dedicated, pretty much dedicated, to SETI. It's being built currently in Northern California, called, of course, the Allen Telescope Array. Until now... Uh, the SETI astronomers have used some of the big and famous telescopes around the world, such as the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia and the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico. They uh, rent the space and the time on these telescopes for durations of anything from uh, days up to months on end. And when they get the Allen Telescope Array up and running, then that will be uh, their instrument that they can use uh, more or less as they want. 
to search the skies. But of course, there's never enough money. Uh, it is the poor relation for radio astronomy. Most radio astronomers are not doing SETI. They're doing, uh, so to speak, more down-to-earth things. But my own feeling about SETI is that restricting it to the radio astronomy part, the present funding is probably adequate. What I think we need to do is not spend more on that aspect of SETI, but to begin thinking about extending the search in different directions, not more radio astronomy, but doing other things. There is one aspect of radio astronomy that is neglected, which I think would stand more chance of success than what they're doing. Traditional SETI looks for what astronomers call narrow band signals. And that's uh, just like when you're listening to a radio station, you twiddle the dial on your radio and tune in to a particular station. You get a particular frequency. So that's what they do. They're looking for narrow band signals. But in my view, a more likely scenario is that some ancient civilization will have built a beacon, a galactic beacon that would go bleep once in a while and sweep the plane of the galaxy with a repeat time of months or years, something of that sort. And then the problem is, what do you do if uh, your SETI radio telescope system shows that something went bleep in the night the night before? You can't go back and investigate it because you don't know when it's going to go bleep again. If there were a system of dedicated telescopes staring at one patch of the sky, probably towards the centre of the galaxy, where the oldest and richest civilizations are likely to be, maybe for 10 years at a time. And then uh, if we noticed that there was a periodic bleep, or better still, a bleep bleep, then I think we would be in business. We could conclude at least there was a beacon out there, that we're not alone in the universe, even if it falls short of being the message that I think traditional SETI scientists have hoped for. So a lighthouse rather than a hello signal. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, so a lighthouse is a very good example because uh, it sweeps around. Uh, there's nobody in particular that it has in mind out there, but anybody who uh, watches in that direction for long enough is going to see a flash of light. So it would be the radio equivalent, or possibly even the optical equivalent of, uh, of a lighthouse, but on a galactic scale. So it would cost a lot of money, but it clearly is uh, possible. There's nothing that we know in physics that would prevent such a thing. A confirmed positive result for SETI would be one of the defining moments of the human race. But what do we do next? <laughs> I chair something called the SETI uh, Post-Detection Task Group, which is a peculiar little organisation. It uh, was set up by the International Academy of Astronautics uh, several years ago. I'm not the first person to chair it. Uh, Ray Norris, a radio astronomer in Australia, preceded me. Uh, he uh, persuaded me to take over and... Uh, the sort of things that we deliberate on are uh, if E.T. should call on my watch, who do we tell, uh, what advice do we give? I should point out right away that this uh, group has no legal standing. It's got no teeth. Uh, it's a purely an advisory body, but I think we can give some sensible advice. And there are a number of issues. One is that it may take a long period of time to evaluate any signal that's picked up. And during that period of time, the astronomers should be left to work untrammeled this seems very hard because once the media gets hold of a story, even if it's a false alarm, then life could become intolerable for the astronomers concerned. If there's a media frenzy and they've got to uh, you know, cross a frantic mob uh, every time they want to get to work. And so that's one thing that we've given some thought to. The other is, I think it's really quite important, that if we get, say, 99% certain that we really are dealing with an extraterrestrial civilization, a radio source out there uh, somewhere across the galaxy, then the coordinates in the sky of the source should be kept secret until such time as we know what we're dealing with. And this is just to prevent uh, any 
crazy person with their radio telescope blasting away uh, at the sky uh, in the hope of uh, getting in first with their all-important cosmic message. There's a cacophony leaking out from Earth in the form of uh, our radio and uh, television transmissions as it is, but a deliberately beamed message at a source which had been identified should be something that is very carefully considered by the world as a whole. Uh, no one has the right to set themselves up to speak for all mankind. And so that is something that uh, we recommend. And of course, even if we did know that we had a signal, we still have the cosmic speed limit of the speed of light. If they're only 50 light years away, which is actually very, very close, it will still take us 50 years to respond and then another 50 years to get their response back to us. Yes, this is the bugbear of uh, SETI as a means of contact and information exchange between interstellar communities, the immense periods of time that it takes the light uh, and radio waves to go from one to the other. And Carl Sagan once remarked, this hardly makes for a snappy conversation. And so that means that we should consider even more carefully uh, what we transmit because it's got to, in some sense, uh, be a succinct summary of what we regard as important or what we want to say. There's... Uh, simply not uh, time for the usual niceties and uh, confusions being ironed out. Uh, we also face the difficulty that what language do we speak? The only language we're likely to have in common with alien beings is mathematics and uh, the laws of physics, because these are the same everywhere. And presumably anybody who's got radio technology understands something about the laws of physics. So that would be a great place to start any dialogue. Uh, and many people feel that this is a bit dull, uh, that they think uh, the pinnacle of human achievement is uh, not the laws of uh, physics, but the works of Beethoven or Mozart or Picasso or whatever is your favourite, or maybe our great uh, religious or philosophical ideas or even our political and sporting uh, prowess. I personally think that um, theoretical physics is the pinnacle of human intellectual achievement, and that's uh, a pretty good way to start. But I would say that, wouldn't I? I'm a theoretical physicist. <laughs> So what do you think is, is the future for SETI? What, where should we be setting our dial and going to now? In spite of the fact that I've been critical of uh, SETI's strategies being a bit too narrow and stuck in a rut, I think they should stick to their guns. They are, after all, being paid by a generous benefactor to do a specific task, and they do it well, and I think they should continue doing that. But meanwhile, uh, my book is acting, I hope, as a wake-up call to the entire scientific community to say, look, uh, we need contributions from people right across the sciences. Let's not leave it to just a small band of radio astronomers uh, to look for signatures of intelligence. If we get away from the idea of trying to pick up a message and, and simply focus on uh, what is a signature of intelligence, what sort of footprint in the astronomical environment would uh, an advanced extraterrestrial civilization make? How could we detect that footprint? Uh, and in particular, over the immense periods of time, one of the the big problems about SETI is people think on much too short a time scale. There could have been stars and uh, planets around long, well, there were long before the solar system even existed. So there could have been civilizations even before Earth formed. And so there's been plenty of time for a civilization that is uh, wanting to spread out a bit around the galaxy to have uh, traveled many times across the galaxy, to have come to our region of the universe, our region of the galaxy. Is it conceivable that an alien expedition or even a colonization wave passed through here sometime in the past. Now, immediately people start thinking, oh, well, you know, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 
No, no, no. These periods of time would be uh, very short. Uh, there's no particular reason the alien should come now. Uh, and if we want to just pluck a figure out of midair, I would say uh, maybe 100 million years ago or perhaps 2 billion years ago. And then the question is, would anything survive? Would there be any traces left of uh, alien technology that uh, was in our cosmic backyard uh, such an immense period of time ago. What I try to do in the book is come up with a few things that do have a very long lifetime, but of course they would not be very conspicuous. So we're unlikely to find any plastic cups or bits of wire lying around. But we might, for example, find uh, nuclear waste uh, buried somewhere. As far as I know, nobody's looked. Paul Davies on widening the search for ET, starting right here on Earth. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. We want to hear from you with any questions or comments, so do get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your space science questions. We first go to Carolyn to answer Utkarsh's question, could the sun orbit a planet? No, the sun cannot orbit round a planet. For the simple reason that if something had enough mass to pull the sun in orbit around it, it wouldn't be a planet anymore, it would be a star. So what dictates all of orbital motion is just gravity. And the more mass something has and the closer you are to it, the more you feel its gravitational tug. So, for example, the sun, it's more than 300 million times the mass of the Earth. It's got more gravity. And so it's the sun that pulls the Earth into orbit around it. And it's always the case that the lesser mass is pulled into orbit around the greater mass. You know, unless you have two objects of equal mass, in which case the sort of symmetry of the situation suggests that they both orbit around a common midpoint. So you're never going to get a star in orbit around a planet. The sun is in orbit, but it's in orbit around the centre of our Milky Way galaxy. And that's an orbit that takes 220 million years or so. But that's a very different matter from, I think, what the question is asking. And that actually takes us into his next question, which is why can't we measure the mass or the area of a black hole using gravity? Well, we do measure the mass of a black hole by gravity. You can't see the black hole itself, but you can see stuff in orbit around it. That's how we know there is this black hole in the centre of our galaxy and in other galaxies. Well, we map the motions of stars or gas in orbit around it and we we see what the gravitational forces they're responding to. You work out what mass is responsible for it. You can pinpoint what kind of volume that's coming from. And so you can get these characteristics exactly, as he says, from the gravitational attraction. Gravity is obviously a popular subject for, for questions at the moment. We've had a question from Joel Rosner, who said that after seeing the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a fantastic film, in my opinion, he was wondering why we don't use the rotating ship that they do, say, for example, on the International Space Station, as a way of simulating gravity. Well, the first thing to say is that it's absolutely scientifically sound. You could simulate gravity that way if you wanted to. And the reason that you can is because things tend to want to go in a straight line. So if you just allow something to fly off, it will do so in a straight line. It won't go round in a curve. And that means to keep things going round in a circle actually requires a force. And that force has to be constantly inwards towards the centre of the circle. So if you're standing 
on uh, the inside of a, a rotating spaceship, then you need a force applied to you to keep you going round in a circle with that spaceship. And the spaceship itself will provide that force to you. And you feel that force in exactly the same way as you feel the force of gravity here on Earth. So why don't we do this in practice? Well, my guess is that there are two reasons. The first one is simply the challenge of building circular space stations. I think engineering-wise, it's, it's a pretty hard challenge. It's hard enough to get all these various bits of the space station up there. And if you look at what it looks like, it's like a sort of array of bolted-on bits. If you want to make it look like a beautiful circle, I think that, that's really quite tricky. But there's a, another perhaps more fundamental reason, which is something called conservation of angular momentum. And what that says is that in space, it's actually really hard to set things spinning. So if you imagine, so, so you've built this circular spacecraft and then somehow you need to set it spinning around its own axis. So you might imagine where you just send an astronaut out there and he takes something that can set it spinning, something like a drill, for instance. You could attach, power up the drill and you imagine that the space station just starts spinning. But actually, if you tried to do that, what conservation of angular momentum says is that the astronaut would have to start spinning in the opposite direction. And in fact, because the astronaut would be less massive than the spacecraft, she or he would, uh, in fact, start spinning much faster than the spacecraft would. So it would be a dizzying experience to start this thing going. Not only that, but then what would you do with this rapidly spinning astronaut afterwards? Because if they got back on the spacecraft, you'd find that everything would cancel out and the spacecraft would stop spinning again. So it's actually really hard to set things spinning in space. But when he wrote it, Arthur C. Clarke wasn't basing this purely on science fiction. The theory itself is, is fairly reasonable. In theory, if you could build the engineering to get the spacecraft built and set it spinning, then absolutely the science is sound. Now, Dominic, we've had a question from Phil in Sacramento in California. He says all of the gas giants have a ring system but none of the terrestrial planets do. Is this just a coincidence or is there actually a reason for it? Would it be expected that other solar systems would be the same? That's a great question. Thank you, Phil. Dominic, what do you think? This is a really excellent question. It's a topic of current research, so I can't really give you a definitive answer, but we have some quite compelling clues. We know that in all of the planets that have ring systems, there's a very close relationship between the moon systems of those planets and the rings. If we look at Saturn's rings, which of course are the most majestic example, we think all the structural features in those rings are quite tightly controlled by the moons of Saturn. Probably the most obvious example is the F-ring, which is a comparatively thin ring in the outside of the, the ring system, which has two moons orbiting on either side, Prometheus and Pandora, which seem to be really shaping the two edges of that ring and carving it into a very tight feature. The more obvious features, such as the Cassini division, we think a result of rather more complicated gravitational interactions called resonances with the larger moons, but essentially the process is comparable that these moons are carving these sharp features into the rings. There are other interactions as well. Back in 2005, Cassini, the spacecraft orbiting Saturn, produced images of the moon Enceladus and revealed geysers which are blasting water ice out of the poles of Enceladus out into space. And we think that material is fueling these rings, pushing new particles 
into them. We think that there will probably be some more interactions that we don't quite understand yet. It's quite possible that at some point in Saturn's early history, a moon came to a very catastrophic end and that this moon was reduced to dust and that this dust is in fact the rings that we see. That's controversial. We also don't really know whether these rings are transient phenomena or whether they've always been there. But we can start to ask why terrestrial planets don't tend to have rings. We know that the gas giants in the solar system all have very rich moon systems, and the terrestrial planets don't. And the reason for this is probably essentially gravitational, that the gas giants are big, they have strong gravitational fields, so they can support much bigger ring systems, whereas planets like the Earth are smaller, they have weaker gravity, they can't support so many moons. But the second issue, I think, that if you want a ring system, it helps if you've got volcanic moons, which are blasting material out into space, like Enceladus's, like Io is around Jupiter. Our own moon is not terribly volcanic because it's orbiting a comparatively low-mass planet. Its crust isn't being stretched and warped as it moves around the Earth because of its weak gravity. Io and Enceladus are being stretched and warped because Jupiter and Saturn are so massive. So those are a few clues, not a definitive answer, and there's a lot more research to be done before we can answer this question. And have we found evidence of rings around extrasolar planets yet, or do we just not have the resolution to see we them? We simply wouldn't have the resolution to see them. It would be fascinating to know. Thank you, Dominic. Now, we've had a question from Daniel Anderson. I think I'll put this one to you, Andrew. He wants to know what are or what were the first elements that were created during the Big Bang? Well, to understand what the first elements created were, we need to look at neutrons and protons in the early universe. Those are the building blocks of atoms as we know them today. And in the very early universe, it turns out that protons and neutrons were able to switch identities in the sense that if you smash a proton and an electron together, then you form a neutron. And similarly, neutrons will actually decay into a proton and electron. And so in the very early universe, and this is times before about one second, the protons and neutrons were in what we call equilibrium. But at some point, the temperature of the universe drops to a point where it's no longer possible to smash protons and electrons together to form any more neutrons. And the consequence of that is that we can predict pretty robustly how many neutrons were left over at that point. And from that point on, the element abundances are already determined because we just need to know how many neutrons were left over. At that point, what happens is that the neutrons that are still floating around get locked up into an element known as deuterium. Now, deuterium is an element made of just one neutron and one proton. So other than hydrogen, which is just a single proton all on its own, deuterium is about the simplest element there is. And then as the universe cools further, it turns out that the deuterium can be smashed together to form helium, which is formed of two neutrons and two protons. So if you smash two deuterium atoms together, you get helium. Because that's a rather simple process, it turns out that all the neutrons that we form effectively end up in helium. 
And they don't go any further than that. You might imagine they'd be made into even heavier elements, but the, uh, there isn't enough energy left over at that point to smash them together into even heavier elements. So you're left with helium, that's where all the neutrons have ended up. You're left with hydrogen, that's all the leftover protons after the helium is made. And you're left with a tiny trace of deuterium, which was this intermediate product. And you can go and find that trace of deuterium as evidence that this process really did happen. Thank you very much, Andrew. That brings us actually to a very nice question from Peter Rubinelli, who's over at Purdue University. And I think I'll put this one to you, Dominic. He wants to know why the Big Bang model is favoured over a steady state model. So what's the evidence that leads us to favour the Big Bang? Well, the test of any scientific theory is whether it makes predictions, which you can then go out and make observations to test. The Big Bang theory obviously predicts that the universe had a very hot beginning, and you would expect that hot beginning to have various observable consequences. The first and most obvious thing that hot things do is they glow. They glow red hot. And we would expect some radiation to be left over from this hot early glow of the universe. And that, of course, was detected in the 1960s. It is the cosmic microwave background. So that was a test of the Big Bang theory. Had it not been observed, that would have been a real problem for the Big Bang Theory. But it was there, it had exactly the right spectral shape, a black body as it's called. The second consequence that this hot beginning would have had, which Andrew has just been talking about, is it would have formed a very precise fraction of hydrogen, deuterium and helium. Now we know that there are places in the universe that can turn hydrogen into helium, we don't know of any processes that can turn helium back into hydrogen. Stars are continually turning hydrogen into helium. So we'd expect in the universe to see fractions greater than a quarter of helium, where stars have made more helium. In regions which are comparatively primordial gas, you'd expect to see exactly a quarter helium compared to hydrogen. If you found any pockets of the universe with less than a quarter helium, that would be a really huge problem for the Big Bang model. However, we have never seen any such region, and we've looked pretty hard. And that says that the Big Bang model really seems to be telling us something which is true about the universe. So I think at this point you can say if the Big Bang model isn't right, if it's not very close to the truth, then it's led a very charmed life over the last 50 years. Of course, no physical theory can ever be proven. An observation may come along, which is a real problem for the Big Bang model, and we may have to rethink. But it hasn't happened yet. And the steady-state model has really had to be quite contorted to explain things like the CMB, the elemental abundances, to try and explain how those arise in a steady-state model. Thanks, Dominic. So the Big Bang Theory really is the best explanation of the universe that we have. That was Dominic Ford, who was joined by Andrew Ponson and Carolyn Crawford to take on your cosmic queries. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But that's all we have for this month's Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and your questions. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. 
Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council.